Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that happen in history. I'm your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Amelia Edwards. Greetings. Hello, and Hello. how are you doing on this heat-wavy time that we're having? You know, it's not too bad. No, it's all right. It's, it's all right. Yeah. Better yeah. than last year. That's true. We haven't got up to 40 degrees yet. Oh, Lord. But if it does get to that stage... Well, no, if it gets to that stage, we'll probably just be staying inside, desperate to stay cool. Mm -hmm. But around this sort of stage, a nice thing to do is, of course, to take a wander in the countryside, perhaps visit a National Trust property, as we used to do when we were, you know, going on dates as teenagers. (laughs) That's how we rolled. We'd go to National Trust properties. I don't think we did that when we were going on dates as teenagers, did we? Yeah, we did, once I got my car. (laughs) <laughs> we oh, definitely yeah, did. We went to Wakehurst Place and Nyman's Gardens. We are so cool. <laughs> I know, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, the reason I bring this up is because today I'm going to be talking, in part, about a garden. Okay. A okay. very special garden. Right. A special garden in Germany. Okay. So I will take you back. The principal player in our story is a man by the name of Leopold Friedrich Franz. Definitely German then. Yes. It's a good name. Uh, of the House of Ascania. Ooh. Or Ascania, not sure. Also known as Prince Leopold III. Ooh. Also known as Leopold III, Duke of Anhalt Dessau. Cool. All right. He was born on the 10th of August in 1740, and he was the eldest son of Leopold II, the Prince of Anhalt-Dessau. Okay. Anhalt-Dessau was a principality in Germany. Um, For those who don't know, principality, it's pretty simple. Basically, it's a little independent area ruled by a prince. Yeah. Usually, like, part can be part of a bigger thing. Like Wales. Exactly, yes. But in this case, Germany hadn't been consolidated yet. There were still sort of questions about the Holy Roman Empire and exactly who owned what and everything like that. They're waiting on Otto von Bismarck. They are, This is yes. the only thing I know about Otto von Bismarck <laughs> is that he united Germany. There's a lot of countries that needed uniting at this point. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Bismarck, I think, was around like 1870 or something. Could be. Yeah. So we're, we're over a century off Bismarck at this point. All right. So um, this is a teeny tiny country within what is now Germany then. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's... It's little, but it was significant. Okay. Uh, it was on the sort of e- eastern side of Germany. I mean, the Dessau region still exists. Mm. Uh, it was on the eastern side, north of modern-day Leipzig. Okay. And therefore, contemporary Leipzig as well. <laughs> Leipzig didn't just shift across the country. <laughs> it was on, like, skis. Yeah. It got very cold one winter and it migrated. Oh, cute. Well, uh, Leopold... As I say, he was the eldest son of Leopold II, so, you know, he's going to inherit once his dad dies. He's the future Leopold III then. Indeed. And his dad's death actually happens a lot earlier than expected. Okay. As does his mother's death. Oh, no. Both his parents died separately in 1751, so he was only about 11 years old. Uh, His mother died on April 20th, and then his father died on the 16th of December. Damn. I know. Pretty rough year for for little Leopold. Yeah, that's really harsh. Also, does this mean that an 11-year-old is now running this principality? Of course not. You know what happens when we get young children who are going to ascend to high office. Ooh, regencies. Yes. 
His uncle Dietrich becomes the regent. Oh, he's going to be evil. Oh, you know what happens when it comes to regencies, right? We've yeah. talked about it a number of occasions on this podcast. Sometimes it's okay. A little bit. And this is one of those occasions. Is it? It's absolutely fine. Oh. It goes off completely without a hitch. His uncle basically looks after everything until Leopold becomes 18. Great. No attempting to blind him No then. attempting to blind him. No I don't think that was a thing anymore, no, but still. No, no attempting to get rid of him at all. Okay. His uncle, who had no natural children, just sort of was like, okay. Yeah. I'll do what a regent is meant to do. He's not, not going to like secretly murder him and hide his bones underneath the floorboards of Westminster or wherever. No, he does nothing. But to be fair, in some ways, maybe he thought he wouldn't have to. Okay. Because it was a tradition amongst the ruling families of the various houses around Germany at the time uh, that when when the young boys reach a certain age, they've got to go into the army. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I think it's particularly with the, with their family, but I think a number of noble families kind of did the same thing. I mean, we sent one of our princes off into the army. He was fine. Yeah, that's true. He has now, you know, relinquished his royal status. But... I don't think that has to do with the <laughs> army, though. He seemed to like the army still. Yeah, fair enough. Well, at age 15, Leopold is going to go off to join the Prussian army. That seems a little young for the 1700s. Perhaps, but, you know, what are you going to do? The little <laughs> princeling is going to go off to war. He's pretty excited about it. Okay, sure, why not? He was, as I say, initially pretty enthusiastic about it. This did not last. Oh. <laughs> because he got a taste for what war was like. Oh, okay. And he realised that, you know, maybe it's not so great. He was like, war... <sighs> What is it good for? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Say it again. I never repeat myself. That's <laughs> <laughs> stealing. We can't do that. No, shit. <laughs> Very few people will have listened to Bleak Expectations, but they really should. Yes, by Mark Evans. There's also a play on at the moment. <laughs> yes, that's true. In the West End. <laughs> <laughs> Which we have seen. <laughs> Are we just shilling for Bleak Expectations now? I think more people have listened to Bleak Expectations than this podcast. Oh, I don't definitely. think it's going to do anything for their numbers well i like to imagine it will anyway leopold is not going to have a good time in the army not only because you know it's pretty grim there is also actually a war going on in fact there are a number of wars going on because (laughs) this is a period known as the seven years war oh great i love wars with numbers at the beginning yeah this is actually a number of different wars that basically span the world uh these are wars that are fought uh in europe in the americas in the asia pacific in africa it was just there's a lot of wars going on at this time okay. and they were all kind of interconnected like there were multiple people fighting multiple different wars at once so right. already you have the French Indian War the Carnatic Wars don't know okay. and the Anglo-Spanish War fantastic and then you throw into this on the 17th of May 1756 the Third Silesian War Weirdly, I have heard of the Third Silesian War, but I have not heard of the Anglo-Spanish War of this time. Oh, fair we were enough. at war with Spain? Apparently so. When is this again? Uh, this is, well, this is 1756 is when the Third Silesian War starts. Huh. And you kind of seem to take the Seven Years' War name from the Third Silesian War. Okay. 
Because that did last seven years. Some of the other ones lasted longer. I yeah. don't know why they decided to go for seven years, but... I knows? don't know. The Hundred Years' War didn't last a hundred years yeah, either. Fair. I think the Seven Years' War... I, I've heard of a Seven Years' War that lasted 16 years. Yeah, I think that probably is this. Is that this? I'm pretty sure that one of these wars lasted 16 years. I wonder why we were at war with the Spanish. I have no idea. I did... I vaguely looked over it, but it's not... It's not hugely relevant to our story, so I only... That's fair. I mean, it's a popular pastime among the English to be either at war with the Spanish or the French, but never both at once. Yes, this is true. And this is what happened in this case. I believe we were teaming up with France. Excellent. (laughs) This must be just before we swapped again. Yes, yeah, because Napoleon's going to come along. (laughs) He actually has a little cameo in this story. Oh, nice. Yeah. Anyway, the Third Silesian War was between uh, King Frederick II, otherwise known as... Frederick the Great. Love Frederick the Great. We haven't talked about him yet, have we? No, I don't think we have, actually. We maybe mentioned him in passing. Oh, I want to do an episode about him. That's fair enough. In that case, I will keep details of him to minimum. Thank you. So, uh, he was leader of the Prussian forces. And this was against the Archduchess Maria Theresa of Austria. Nice. Which, Archduchess, is a pretty good title. Yeah, it's somehow scarier than Archduke or Queen. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Archduchess. Archduchess. Sounds like she's a sort of um, Red Queen figure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, the reason for this war is that Austria wanted Silesia. Okay. And Silesia is basically, if you think of the south areas of Poland... Right. That's roughly where it is. Okay. And the thing is, they did used to have Silesia. I'm sure they did. Everyone probably had it at some point. Yeah. And then they lost it during the first two Silesian wars. <laughs> okay. Now, Prussia, basically seeing that Austria was, you know, kind of building an army, mm-hmm. kind of maybe going to invade Silesia, decided to preemptively attack Austria. Yeah. I think one thing that we can say about Frederick the Great without impinging on my own episode yeah. is that he was a bit of an empire builder himself as well. Oh, Yeah. This actually turned out to be a really bad idea um, because it united several other countries against Prussia. Fantastic. Because they're basically like, whoa, 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 why are you attacking Austria? They've done nothing. And it's like, well, they did have loads of troops, but they were just standing there. <laughs> they weren't going to do anything. Oh, God. But yeah, yeah it, it, was, it was not a great start, but things actually went pretty well for quite a long time for <laughs> okay. Frederick anyway. So Leopold III was involved in the war. Mm-hmm. Really didn't like it, and particularly didn't like when he was involved in the Battle of Kolin, which was on the 18th of June, 1757. Uh, following the successful Battle of Prague, Prussian forces were besieging the city. But some Austrian forces under Marshal Leopold von Dorn, or Down, managed to rally 16,000 soldiers who had escaped the Battle of Prague and incorporated them into his army. And since Prussia did not have the resources to besiege the city and fend off the Austrian army, Prussian forces basically decided, you know what, we're just going to attack the Austrian army. Right. This was not a good move. <laughs> and up to, up until this point, Frederick the Great had been making some pretty good decisions. Yeah. The Battle of Kolin was not one of them. Uh, the Prussians attacked early. Okay. They attacked out of formation. Oh, God. And they attacked with a force of 34,000 Prussian soldiers against the Austrian 54,000. Oh, no. And the Austrians had more guns. Yeah. So the Austrians outgunned Prussia, 
and managed to outmaneuver them, and Prussia lost the battle. This actually marked the first loss by Frederick the Great in the Third Silesian War. Okay. Approximately 14,000 Prussian soldiers died. That's very understandable. Yeah. And that's also like nearly half of his force. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It is. Leopold III was in this battle. He, of course, survived. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in this story. Be a short episode. It would. And dull. Yeah. But he was basically so horrified by what he saw that he was basically like, right, I'm not doing this anymore. And he left the army. Wow. In 1758, he was declared of age and he became the Prince of Anhalt-Dessau. And one of his earliest acts was to declare that Anhalt-Dessau was politically neutral. Oh. Because he didn't want to get involved in any more wars ever. Yeah. So he's basically like, screw all y'all, you can fight each other. Here, we are not fighting. Right. That sounds like... Okay, first of all, were there any other politically neutral countries that we know of at the time? This sounds unusual. I believe it was unusual. I don't know Yeah. if there were any others. Um, I think he definitely was unusual, uh, especially because, you know, Germany's kind of made up a lot of these yeah. little countries at this point. And I think there's a lot of infighting that normally happens. And of course, yeah. you've got the Seven Years' War still going on. <laughs> yeah. Which involves it, a lot of the world. It can't have been a popular move with, like, to ingratiate him with Frederick II or no. Maria Theresa. No, probably not. But, you know, he's just going to sit there and just be like, nope, not fighting. I'm, okay. not, I'm not playing. All right. <laughs> you two can do whatever you want. But you're not but- allowed not to play at this time. <laughs> like, gosh, imagine if that was a thing in Game of Thrones. Imagine if you had someone who was like, no, we are politically neutral. <laughs> we are politically neutral. We are going to trade and we are going to farm. And that is what we are doing. <laughs> well, Leopold wasn't going to just, you know, trade and farm. He was going to do something else. Right. He went on holiday. <laughs> okay so wait he's just said okay my country is politically neutral bye (laughs) yeah basically i mean to be fair to him he's just spent the last couple of years in the army he's seen horrific things i don't think he wants to think about that i think he just wants a little break okay wait how old is he at this point like 18 yeah He's 18. Oh, that poor kid. I know. That's why I don't begrudge him a couple of holidays. He's he's allowed to take the holiday, but also just thinking about it from like a screenwriting perspective. That's bonkers. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Well, on his first major jaunt around different countries, he went to Holland and then to England. Cool. And then later on, he did a second trip where he toured Italy. France and England again. Do you know his first trip is the same as um, one that we've talked about before on this podcast? Oh, yeah? uh, Which was Peter the Great. Oh, really? Yes, he went to Holland and then England. Yeah, yeah, I do remember. And then he came back and cut off everyone's beards. (laughs) Well, Leopold's not going to do that. Partly because over the course of his journeys, he spends about two and a half years in England. Nice. He loves England. Okay. He's actually known, one of his nicknames is the Anglophile Prince. <laughs> right. And also get means I get to employ a term that we heard relatively recently that I've not heard before. I don't know how common it actually is, but I do like it. Tiaboo. Oh, yeah. It's like a weeaboo, but for British England. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think at this point we were on the coffee, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, almost definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But... Hey, doesn't matter. Leopold III, massive tear boo. <laughs> Cute. 
Whilst he was in Wittenberg, which is around Leipzig, basically, All right. he met a university student, uh, Friedrich Wilhelm von Erdmannsdorf, and the two became close friends. And in fact, they did go on some of these holidays together. Nice. Leopold was really enthusiastic about the various things he saw around him. He liked the really ancient history of Italy and France. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was basically like, oh my God, I love classical stuff. Ooh. It's amazing. I want it. Okay. And he was also really interested in the Enlightenment. How far past the Enlightenment are we? Or how far into the Enlightenment are we? We're pretty far into the Enlightenment, but mm. we, we've, we've got a good few decades left of the Enlightenment. Sure. The Enlightenment lasted a lot longer than I thought it did. Yeah, it's a long time yeah. and really dry writing. <laughs> like, I don't know much about the Enlightenment specifically because it's not a great era for British literature. Ah, well... We, we are definitely getting towards the end of it because at this point people are starting to incorporate some more poetical stuff uh, particularly when it comes to landscape architecture excellent yes we'll get to that later because Leopold super into landscape architecture fantastic so we're we're enlightenment but we're sort of more getting towards maybe people going a bit gothic and romantic I maybe. believe so right. yeah but he's mostly really interested in you know the advancement of science yeah and bringing education to people he actually becomes known as a really a, a pretty generous guy nice uh he introduces a load of reforms to help modernize and help dessau uh making reforms in the areas of education healthcare, social services roads agriculture forestry and industry and in fact for a while and dessau kind of becomes the most modern place in europe wow yeah it's doing... social services yeah social services in the 1700s yes yeah. that's incredible no. like what does that mean? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. I couldn't find out exactly what it meant, <laughs> but it said it, so I'm saying it. Okay, fair. <laughs> he was also a progressive, and not only did he open uh, a synagogue. Okay, cool. And a Jewish school, mm -hmm. but he also opened the first Jewish newspaper in Germany. Nice, And okay. this was at a time where, you know, it's not the worst time to be Jewish in Germany, but, yeah. you know... Everyone always has to keep that kind of thing a bit under wraps. Yeah. I guess, like, the Enlightenment is not necessarily particularly bad in terms of anti-Semitism in Europe. No, but you're not going to be expecting rulers to go out of their way to accommodate Jewish people. No. Like, I know that Frederick the Great was... Um, opening some and like funding some temples for specific groups of Christians that he wanted to come into the country right? who were of a different religion and he was promoting like tolerance. Yeah. But this was at a point where it was like tolerance means all types of Christians. Yeah. And like we won't say no to Jewish people. <laughs> <laughs> I think Leopold was a bit more open. Like he yeah. took that a step further and was just basically like, you know, come on in. Come on, bring your bring your various skills. We'll modernize Anhalt Dessau even more. Yeah. Like, oh hey, a group of people who are traditionally very interested in, you know, intelligence and writing. Yeah. That could be useful. <laughs> Absolutely. But he's not just interested in, you know, science and scholarly subjects. He mm -hmm. also is really captivated by the beauty of nature. Nice. And in fact, he was particularly captivated when he was in Italy. He went to see Vesuvius. Okay. Which was a pretty popular pastime. Apparently, there was a big 
influx of rich people going to visit Vesuvius in the areas around it. That makes sense. Well, it's because in 1748, Pompeii was first rediscovered. Oh, cool. And at that point, the excavation was happening, and a lot of these rich people would basically bribe the workers to let them go around and, like, basically do the tour that you can do today. Yeah. But, you know... Unofficially. and And also... Not really knowing what anything meant. Yeah, exactly. Like, my gosh, there's an awful lot of penises on these walls. (laughs) There are a lot of penises on the walls of Pompeii. (laughs) I have heard. Yeah. I've never been there, but it's one of the only things I know about it. Yeah, I've been a couple of times. The amount of penises is quite shocking. (laughs) Romans really didn't care. (laughs) Well, anyway, this all you know, promoted a big interest in that particular era of history. And as such, people were like, we're going to climb Vesuvius because, you know, we like hiking, we like climbing mountains. And that's the thing that, you know, buried Pompeii, which we're all super fascinated at the moment. Makes sense. So Leopold and his friends were basically like, do we want to climb it? It's looking a bit, you know, unsafe up there. But it's like, no, it's fine. We'll climb it. So they end up climbing Vesuvius, getting to the top, right at the edge of the crater. And then it's like, hmm, there's a lot of smoke coming out of it. Oh my God, no. And then there's an explosion. Oh no. (laughs) Because they witness firsthand an eruption of Vesuvius. Right from the top? Yeah. And they survived? Yeah. Fortunately, it was only one of the smaller eruptions, but they were very lucky because I think the year after was a severe eruption. Damn. Because... So Vesuvius is still active. Yeah. And it kind of goes through phases of being really active and just being sort of active. Okay. So around this time, it was in a really active phase. Okay. uh, Which started in 1631. There was an eruption that killed 3,000 people. And then subsequent severe eruptions were in 1660, 1682... 1698, has done a lot of erupting and i think yeah they were they were in be- it was in between the six the 1760 and the 1767 eruption that they went and i think that you know it was still doing smaller eruptions during that yeah. time vesuvius is angry yeah I've- i mean they've got a volcano god in there haven't they yeah absolutely <laughs> but also i'm just imagining being the people excavating pompeii <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that. Like, they're excavating Pompeii while Vesuvius is actually active. Yeah. Like, first of all, terrifying. Second of all, imagine if, like, you'd done all this hard work, evacuate, like, excavating a particular house and you got all the details, go away for a weekend, come back, pyroclastic flow. <laughs> guess covered again. I guess there's not pyroclastic flow anymore, given that it's fine. Yeah. I mean, well, to be fair, I mean, the 1631 did destroy a village and killed 3,000 people. But it's not Pompeii, and that's the important thing. Yes, absolutely. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this definitely left a huge impression on Leopold, as I imagine it would, to be right there when a volcano is erupting. I mean, to be fair, so I've I've hiked Vesuvius a couple of times, and the crater is huge. It is massive. Like, if it's a mini-eruption, I could see, you know... 
you probably wouldn't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. But you're not in imminent danger. Right. Okay. It's sort of happening at the bottom and you're yeah. at the top kind of deal. Uh, yeah. Okay. I imagine that's the sort of thing. Um, it did say that it basically spat out a bunch of rocks. It would do. But I don't think there was, you know, severe lava flow or anything like that. Right. Okay. So Leopold returned from his holidays. Mm-hmm. And like any good person of aristocratic birth... Uh, one of the first things he does is he marries his cousin. Fantastic, yes. Uh, Louise Henrietta Wilhelmine. Nice. Uh, they would have two children together over the course of their marriage. Uh, Leopold, though, is also known to have had ten illegitimate children, Ooh. including three by the daughter of his master gardener. Um... Is that okay? Like, I don't is that know. an okay situation? I have absolutely no idea. There's so little information about this. A lot of like, if you look up Leopold, you hear a lot about him and his garden. Right. You don't hear much about his prodigious sexual proclivities. <laughs> okay. Which I seems to have been going on for quite a while. I mean, this either sounds like alarming, slightly pressurey situation, mm. or Mills and Boone. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh my god, it is, isn't They're it? They're in a garden and yeah. he's a prince. Yeah. Wow, it really is. Yeah. Good lord. I wonder if they've done this. <laughs> they really should. I I expect somebody somewhere in some like really teeny tiny German film industry <laughs> situation. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Well, in 1774, Leopold uh, hired his friend, Erdmannsdorf, to build a residence with an English park garden as a gift to his wife. Nice. Maybe as a sort of sorry for all the affairs. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it bore the name Schloss Louisium in her honour. Nice, Because, yeah. you know, she's Louise. She's Louise. It's a schloss. Yeah. Erdmannsdorf, by the way, is actually an architect at this point. Okay. He didn't just hire his friend who had no experience. Like, that was what he had been studying. Okay. He was an architect and a landscape architect as and well. And he'd been to England. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He also uh, hired Erdmannsdorf to build him a new palace, the Verlitz Palace, uh, which was the first neoclassical building in Germany. Okay. And during this period, this is the bit where I was talking about where gardens tended to show different sides of nature. There was a sort of proto-romantic view mm. uh, showing the beauty of nature but also the power of nature. We're kind of going a bit Capability Brown maybe. Yes. We're like okay I want this to have a hill in it Yeah. and I want a river running through and I want you to move all that earth. Yeah and there was also people sort of kind of destroying things to make it look like a hurricane had been through or like a flood had happened. Really? Yeah. That's very cool. There was this real thing about, you know, nature is powerful. We're going to show these natural disaster things. Okay. And Leopold is definitely going to get in on this trend, but he goes hard on is it. Is he going to build a volcano? Is that what's going to happen? Oh, yes. Yes. So he extends and alters the old gardens of Oranienbaum, mm -hmm. uh, which had been done in the Dutch style. And he's like, no, no, no. No, no, no. I want an English park. And it's renamed the Dessau Verlitz Garden Realm. Great. The Garden Realm contained basically a lot of stuff that Leopold was interested in. There were lots of buildings, follies, reconstructions of the Pantheon. Nice. Uh, replica Roman temples, collections of Greek vases, a French tomb. Right. A Chinese pagoda. Mm -hmm. And most notably, an artificial volcano. Okay. First of all, this, I'm sure this was beautiful and like nicely spaced out. 
Oh, yeah. But it sounds tacky as I mean, both of these things are true. <laughs> I, I've had a little look at it because a lot of it does is surviving. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's both. Okay. It's both pretty impressive and kind of beautiful. And then you look at the buildings and it's like, mm, that's gross. I mean, also it's like, okay, I've been to, you know, fancy gardens where they'll have like a couple of follies in the sort of Greek style. Yeah. And I've been to ones where they've got like maybe a little pagoda on a lake. Mm. I've not been to ones where they've got both of those <laughs> things. I got all the things. And hey, you want to see a volcano? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that volcano. So... Was it was it working? What's the deal with it? Oh, yeah. How? Well, I will explain. Uh, it was built on a stone island by a river, and the it was constructed around an inner building that was five stories high. Okay. And then covered with uh, local boulders in order to look like an authentic uh, local volcano. Okay. Wait, a local German vol- volcano? Apparently there are volcanoes in Germany. Are there? Apparently so. I don't know but if it's I... not on a fault line. I have absolutely no idea. Okay. But if you search for German volcanoes, stuff comes up. Oh. As I discovered, because I was trying to look for this, thinking, you know, there are no volcanoes in Germany. And then I had to specify artificial volcano. Oh. <laughs> At the top of this five-story volcano, there was a hollow cone uh, that contained a high-ceilinged chamber that had three massive fireplaces in it. Okay. It also had a crater that could be filled with water in order to create a huge cloud of steam. Right. And these fireplaces, when fed, would basically... It would heat up the water, you'd get the steam, and you'd get the smoke of the fire. You'd get a huge cloud. The whole thing was about 56 feet tall. We only have one sort of contemporary painting depicting what it looked like when it was lit. And the suggestion from this is that the column of smoke coming out of it was about 30 feet high. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And it gets... It, it gets... There's more. Okay, okay. Because they also had arrangements so that they would pour... Like, red-tinted water would come out of it <laughs> so that it would actually look like an eruption. And there were red lamps... Yeah. ...so that it would give the whole thing a sort of lava look to it. Okay, that's amazing. But also, I love that their solution is very much like how they make the water look nice at mini-golf. Oh, yeah. It really is. Yeah. So... When constructing this volcano, Leopold was like, well, I'm going to want somewhere to, you know, have a look at it. Mm -hmm. So he also asked Ermendorf to kind of flood the surrounding area and then have a villa and an amphitheater built so that, you know, you can watch it from there or you can take a boat and go by the volcano. Oh, my God. This is overkill, man. It really is. is. What is going on? Yeah. The whole thing took about six years to build. That's just the volcano. Um, and the sort of, you know, lake and surrounding areas there. And he opens it up to the public and does a live eruption to entertain people. That's incredible. Yeah. It didn't thrill everyone. One of the main accounts we have is actually from a critic called Carl August Bertinger, who wrote a lengthy report in 1797 ridiculing the spectacle of the volcano. (laughs) Okay. He basically, he didn't seem to say that, you know, it looked bad or anything like that. He was just basically like, what is this? Why is this here? What is the point of this? (laughs) I mean, that's a very good question. (laughs) He does seem to have been like, you know, it's marvellous engineering. Yeah. But why? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... It sounds like they went into so much effort to make it look like a real volcano. Yeah. And 
at the same time why <laughs> leopold really liked vesuvius what can i tell you this is like 22 years after the fact okay he was like i remember vesuvius still and i want that in my yeah, garden okay and he was super thrilled with this like he would throw garden parties and every single one he'd have an eruption happen do you think people started to get bored being like oh my god every time <laughs> possibly volcano eruption like but we've seen it before maybe but leopold was happy that's nice he also continued to be completely disinterested in politics. <laughs> okay. Deciding to keep Anhal Dessau as politically neutral, but he did, as an individual, apparently, he impressed Napoleon enough Ooh. that Napoleon actually invited him to visit his palace in Paris. Amazing. Uh, Leopold did end up being one of the uh, princes to join the Confederation of the Rhine. Which was kind of proto-Germany. Right. Uh, he was like the German Empire or the German section of the French Empire. Okay. So he did kind of get into the politics part of it, but it was only, I think it was just because a lot of his neighbours were and it was kind of easier. Yeah, it kind of sounds like modern day EU politicking yeah. rather than sort of old-fashioned, we're going to fight you Yeah, politicking. pretty much. Uh, so this led to, in 1807, his title changing and him technically getting a promotion, although it doesn't sound like it, from prince to duke. Okay. Which, because it becomes this confederacy, the duke kind of becomes higher than what a prince would have been beforehand. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, so that's why he becomes Leopold III, Duke of Anhalt-Bessau. Right. Having previously been prince. He also uh, gained regency of the Duchy of Anhalt Curtin. So he's doing pretty well for himself, but really, you know, he's mostly interested in his garden and yeah. throwing parties and delighting people with his artificial volcano. Amazing. What a way to live. <laughs> I know, right? In 1817, at the age of 76, he dies in an accident where he fell from his horse, which, as ways to go for an aristocrat... Like, falling off a horse at 76, pretty good. That's not bad. That's not bad. And it doesn't seem to have been a tragic death either. So, yeah. yay, that's a, a rarity on that time when, where someone doesn't die in poverty. Round of applause for Leopold. Yay. He managed to do what he wanted without affecting many people. <laughs> yeah. His grandson succeeded him because his son had actually, his only legitimate son had actually died some years prior. And Leopold IV did maintain the gardens, but for whatever reason, he really wasn't interested in the volcano. I wonder why. <laughs> He'd be in every single party that made him stay up late. Like, You've got to stay up late, little Leopold. You've got to see the volcano. You've got to see Grandpa Leopold's volcano. By the time he was 16, he was sick of it. <laughs> and when he got to the throne, he was like, I hate that thing. <laughs> well, he didn't tear it down or anything. He just basically left it to do its own thing. That's fair. So it still sat there. And, you know, a 56-foot high <laughs> volcano on a stone island. It's too a hard to do dismantle it it almost definitely is um yeah the rest of the gardens are maintained the volcano is left to kind of decay mm. there were no more official eruptions it fell into disrepair in fact the only thing that could be amounted to an eruption that occurred there was i believe in the 20th century where there was a tire fire oh no oh, that's really sad it is really sad and then in 1983, the East German authorities officially condemned the volcano after part of it collapsed and killed someone. Whoa. So they're basically like, no one go near this anymore. Yeah. 
we're just done with this. Like, don't touch it. Just leave it to do its own thing. I love that even the East Germans are not like, you know, this is symbolic of the wealth and depravity <laughs> of the upper classes. They're like, no, it's it's just a nuisance. It's a hazard. <laughs> it really, that really is their attitude. But that is not the end to our story. Because in 2004, the World Heritage Site's management turned to one Wolfgang Spira, an enthusiastic chemistry professor at the Brandenburg Technical University, who also had a side interest in historical pyrotechnics. Nice. Because why not? <laughs> and were basically like, we want you to rebuild and recreate Leopold's volcano. Wow. Okay. He was super into this. Uh, when asked about it, he said, a volcano that can't explode is a very sad volcano. And I wanted to make it happy again. Oh, that's cute. He said, we wanted to help the volcano get its identity back. <laughs> but the, the volcano was condemned years ago. <laughs> yeah, but that's not the volcano's fault. But People should it, have looked after it. Is it still there at all? But yeah, bits of it are. Okay, okay. Yeah, they didn't demolish it. They just basically just left it. Oh. Like, it's the sort of thing where you just like put up a sign basically saying, do not enter danger, blah, right, blah, blah. Okay. And just leave it. Okay. I mean, it had largely fallen apart. All the sort of engineering that had gone into it was completely gone. Yeah. But Spire is basically like, yeah, I'll take this up. He also, by the way, this man is mad. Okay. Like, firstly, chemistry professor with an interest in the history of pyrotechnics, fair enough. He also worked for a decade as the head of Berlin's criminology lab. What? Yeah. I don't know if this happened afterwards or something, but, like, this man has some wild interests. He's having a great time. Yeah. He'll turn up on one of our episodes one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, also... um, because of his work on the Leopold volcano, he started signing all his official emails, Spira the Eruptor. <laughs> oh my god. Is he around? I believe he is, yeah. Can we message him on Twitter or something? I don't know. I'd have to look into it. I, I really should have done more, more <laughs> research about him. Fair. But I just, I think I just did this and I was just like, I'm done. This is mad. Okay, yeah, fair. Uh, he had to do a lot of historical research and detective work in order to basically figure out how the volcano worked because yeah. there was very little evidence beyond this one account okay. and one painting. Yeah. But from that, in 2005, he managed to recreate the whole thing. Wow. Well done, Spira. And they managed to get it to erupt. Yay! And not only that, it has since become an annual event where they will erupt the volcano... But the precise date when they'll do this is not always revealed. Oh. Because, as Spira says, would you ask a volcano when it's going to go off? <laughs> but it's an artificial volcano. It's a volcano and it was sad and now it's happy. I, uh, okay, fine, Spira, you madman. <laughs> so that is the story of Leopold III and his artificial volcano. And you know what? I'm really happy that it still exists. It's I'm really happy that it exists and, you know, it can erupt. <laughs> I've had a look at it. It is quite impressive. I'd love to see it. Yeah. I it's will... kind of a shame that we can't visit at a time when it will erupt, though. Yeah, I know. That is the one problem with it being like, it's going to erupt once a year. Well, what day? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever the volcano wills it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4, and you can suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to support us, the best thing you can do at the moment would be to leave us a five-star review on your listening app of choice. And thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in the podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and build more artificial volcanoes. Bye! Bye!